We can begin. If you guys would, stand with me. Um, and we're going to read Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. The word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word, to sit at your table. And we just pray that you would reveal the nature of your kingdom to us, that you would reveal your character to us. We invite you to speak uh, in, in ordinary space and time in this, this Sunday that feels like every other Sunday. We invite you to, to interrupt, to disrupt what we have in mind. And be at work as we sit and listen for your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those, those words that Jacob speaks, always kind of captivate me. They're very memorable. They stick with you. Surely the Lord was in this place, and I, I didn't know it. I wasn't aware of it. That kind of captures, it, it, it articulates something that we've all experienced at some level. It's a, a, a familiar feeling, a sentiment that we all know. 
Because there are these moments throughout our lives where we find ourselves staring into the face of something like that we can't explain or make sense of. We know that it, it's real. We know that it's true. We're experiencing it. We feel it and know it to be true. And yet it does not fit into any of these neatly formed categories that we have for what our life is supposed to look like or what faith even is supposed to look like. This week, our, most of you know, a lot of you know, our family was, was sick. So family comes down with the flu. And from the moment it starts, I begin to compulsively disinfect my home, right? I'm doing all the things you're supposed to do. I'm washing my hands infinite amounts of times. I mean, it's unbelievable how much I'm washing my hands. And April is, was out of town at the time, so it's just like I'm, I'm solo trying to keep this place disinfected. It was like a hospital in my house. It was crazy. And I, I'm, I'm doing all of these things. And I think we kind of like take that for granted. I thought about it this week. Like, I hear that one of my children is sick, and immediately, because I have always lived in this world so thoroughly shaped by, you know, science, germ theory, all of these things, like I just take for granted that I can protect my family. I can prevent this sickness. Watch me work, right? This is the way we, we think about things. And then I thought, like, for thousands of years, though, that's, that's not how we understood sickness. That's not how we explained sickness or dealt with sickness. It was largely just superstition that helped us explain or understand or deal with sickness. There wasn't really any sense of, of control, but we all live in this world with a kind of like scientific confidence, this sense of, of control, like I can, I can fix this. And that's all true, like we do. We have this level of control that thousands of years they just, they just wouldn't have had all that time ago. There's this one thing I kept thinking, right? If I have compulsively washed my hands and sprayed my house so well, if I have so thoroughly disinfected, then why did all of my children fall like dominoes throughout the rest of the week? Why did it not actually work? Like there's this, this moment that you, you come to realize, right? There, there, there are moments where where I felt like as I was spraying Lysol, it was more superstitious than it was scientific. I'm just, I'm just doing this because I know I'm supposed to, and I realize I have absolutely no control. I'm just hoping and, and praying and, and knowing the whole time. I don't have as much control as I think I do. There is something beyond my understanding. There's something I can't see that I don't have control of, something beyond me, Right? Sickness is just one of those things. But there, there are all of these, these moments throughout our lives where we, we realize like we don't have control of certain things. We don't understand certain things, and we struggle to explain them or make sense of them. When it comes to faith, when we see something like that, we call it a miracle. We say it's miraculous, right? If it's science, there are no miracles. It's just an anomaly, it's outside of our categories. It's outside of our, our present understanding or knowledge. And the idea is, like, eventually we will understand it, theoretically. But as of now, we do not, right? These experiences, like, we run into over and over again throughout our lives, they sit just beyond the edge of, of what we, you know, thought we knew, right? What we thought we understood. And when Jacob falls asleep, that night. He has this theory, this understanding of how 
God works, how the world works, and how God relates to it, right? He sees all of this one way, but when he wakes up, he wakes up to a reality that is outside of all of these neatly formed categories and boundaries for what God is supposed to be like, right? Jacob has lived in a world where all of the religious and and philosophical systems of the day tell him God works a particular way. There's this whole pantheon, a whole collection of gods, and they work a very particular kind of way. They're all very fickle, and they all have very strange demands, but if you want their favor, then you have to comply, right? They exist in the heavens, and the only means by which you can really have relationship with them is is through these sacred spaces, right? There are certain places that are especially holy or or sacred, right? So there are temples, there are shrines that are built, there are mountains that are particularly holy and marked in this way. There are even trees that are marked, ancient trees that they would gather under and worship. So many different religions are doing this at the time. But it's very clear, these gods are distant, they are detached from our existence unless... You approach them in the right way and at the right kind of place, right? That's the way it works. And as as Jacob finds himself in this position, right, he's on an isolated journey. He's by himself, and he's really on the run for his life. If you know the story of Jacob, his brothers just told him outright, I'm going to kill you. And because Jacob deserves it. Jacob has manipulated his brother into giving up his birthright, his inheritance. If that wasn't bad enough, he's lied to his own father, stolen his brother's blessing from his father, which is immensely significant, maybe even more so than the birthright. And so he's on the run for his life. He's trying to save his life by running away. And he sees no help for himself. He sees that that God, being distant and detached, can do nothing really to help him. He's just trying to, to save himself here. But in this dream... Jacob is awakened to a God who is not distant, to a heaven that is not closed off to humanity. He's awakened to this mingling between heaven and earth that he didn't realize existed. He's awakened to an intimate connection that is available between God and humanity, even in the most ordinary and broken sort of moments of our lives. Now, like, at first glance, you read this and you say, well, this sounds like anything else you've ever heard. There's a long list of religions that tell of dreams and revelations just like this. There are all kinds of spiritual epiphanies similar to this. But Jacob's dream doesn't really fit into the categories that his society has for what religion is supposed to look like. And it doesn't fit into Jacob's experience of faith either. It's different. This is not what he's expecting at all, right? This is a miraculous turn of events for Jacob in a different kind of way. Because what's so miraculous about Jacob's epiphany, this dream he has, is not just that the God of heaven is making known to humanity that he is open and available that he cares for them. It's that he's making that known to Jacob. He's not making it known just to anybody. He's making it known to Jacob. And Jacob's life is one long list of offenses and failures. That's who Jacob is. 
Now, again, central to almost any culture, any religion, are these kind of like epiphany, light bulb moments for some charismatic leader, for some central figure. They have this sort of moment, right? And it can all appear very much like Jacob's, but because Jacob is so obviously broken, this reveals something unique about God. We're used to God revealing these sorts of things to the kinds of figures who are deserving of it, right? Instead, in Jacob's epiphany, we begin to see something of the real character and nature of God that's kind of outside of what we expect. This is a God who comes to us rather than requiring us come to him. This is a God who is with us in the most ordinary and broken spaces of our lives and not just those that seem so profound and sacred. This God, in Jacob's mind, is an anomaly. He does not fit into all of the neatly formed categories that his society has or that he has for how this is supposed to work, right? And there are all these little details in the story that show you just how unique all of this is. The way the story is told, Jacob, again, remember, he's on the run. He leaves Beersheba, which is like in the south of what will eventually become the nation of Israel. And he's going to this place called Paddan Aram, okay, which is outside of Israel, far to the north of what will eventually be Israel, north even of Syria, right? It's a long journey. And Jacob's just getting started when he comes to this place. And it's just called that. It's just called place. In Hebrew, the word just says, he came to a certain place. And because the sun had gone down and he was tired, and this is what you do, he stopped just to sleep. That's all he's there for. It's not like a significant landmark. It's just place. And it's called place like five different times. Over and over again, the author is saying, it was just a place on the side of the road. He just, he just stopped at, at the place, right? And, and this is important. Here's Jacob. He finds himself in this sort of in-between phase of his life. It's in-between phase of his journey, between where he's just left and where he's going, right? Between his broken past and the uncertainty of his future. He has no idea whether or not he'll ever be able to go back home, and he has no idea what he's going to find when he goes to this, this family that he has far in the north. He's in this in-between sort of place, and he comes to a place with no landmarks, nothing significant, nothing historic, nothing memorable at all. It's just place where the sun went down. That's it. That's all it is. There is no less likely a spot for something so profound to happen than this one. It's just the side of the road, right? There's no less likely place for God to manifest himself to Jacob. And it's like the author is trying to say when he, he keeps dropping this. He came to a place, and he called that place, and he, he laid down in that place. It's like he's trying to say, there will be no profound spiritual experiences here. Understand? This is as ordinary a place as you can imagine, right? It's the uh, equivalent of the truck stop bathroom that we all come to at some point, right? You're here for a purpose. You get in, and you get out as quickly as possible. You touch as few surfaces as possible, right? You flush the toilet with your foot, because this is not Bucky's. You know, like this is, this is not a place you want to spend a lot of time. Like it's, there's nothing about it that is good or, or worth being at longer than you have to be. 
It's that kind of place. You're here for a reason. And it's there that God interrupts the story. It's there where something profound begins to happen. And that's one of those details that it matters more than we realize, right? That's something you can just kind of like skip past. But that encapsulates our lives. That's the daily experience of any person, any believer especially, something we wrestle with. This week, you will find yourself in place. Whatever that place may be, you will find yourself in that sort of place. And you will inevitably be oblivious to the nearness of God. You will be oblivious to the, the inbreaking of heaven into our world. You will be oblivious to this movement that is perpetually happening, happening between heaven and earth. You will not see it or understand it or likely even acknowledge it, and yet it will remain true. There is a thing beyond your understanding, beyond what you see or recognize. This is the nature of this God. This is a God who transforms seemingly ordinary places into like sacred space. This is the way he works. That which felt so ordinary and so common and mundane, this is a God who marks those kinds of spaces as holy. He sanctifies these, these ordinary common moments, these broken kinds of moments. That's important for us to hold on to. Because we spend most of our life in that kind of place. We need to recognize the sanctity of it, right? Then there's this stairway, right? It's the most memorable part of the story. We hear of it and we think, you know, of, of our stairs, right? The older translation is of a ladder, right? Jacob's ladder, which stretches all the way to heaven, right? But that doesn't quite capture the word very well in Hebrew. And so now the, the better translation is, is something like a stairway. But even then, we hear stairway and we think like the stairs in our architecture, in, in our homes. And that, that's not really what Jacob's getting at. Um, what he's actually describing is a lot like an ancient temple. These ancient pyramids that we see, older than the Egyptian pyramids you're used to seeing, like the stepped pyramids, what we call the ziggurat, right? If you remember that from, from history class, right? These ancient Mesopotamian structures, right? That's what Jacob is kind of describing with this word stairway. And stairway is not the only clue to that because later, remember, he wakes up and he says, this place is incredible. It's awesome. And what he means by that is this place is, is, is fearful. He's expressing his fear. And he says, this, this is the very house of God. This is Bethel. This, he says, is the gateway of heaven. And that word, the gate, the gateway. It means something significant, right? That's the word that Hebrew people used. It was equivalent to the, the word the Akkadians used for these temples. He's describing a temple when he says the gate of heaven. So like what he's saying is he sees from heaven this temple structure, stairs all the way to the top, right? And he sees angels ascending and descending. That's what he's dreaming of, like a, a temple that stretches all the way to, to heaven, it's all very familiar imagery for Jacob, but what's so surprising, what's so striking about all of this for Jacob is that this kind of temple that he's seeing, these stairs that reach all the way to heaven, it would normally function completely differently, okay? Normally, the expectation in this sort of setting would be that the only access humanity can have to heaven would be through these like mediating figures, through priests. Who goes up the pyramid? Who goes up the steps? 
to make sacrifices, to bring gifts, only priests, only those who are qualified, only certain people whose life and work are dedicated to worship. Only these people would be invited to experience God in this way. And only if they approach rightly, only then can they come to the gate of heaven. Only then can they come to this place where God's home and our home overlap in this sort of way. It's the only way it works. Otherwise, you'd be doomed. That's the understanding that exists. And we know that even from the way that, that Yahweh teaches them about his temple and the way they are to approach him. But this temple that Jacob is seeing, it, it functions completely differently, right? The stairway runs in reverse. It's not what you're expecting, right? Instead of humanity, you, you see no humans on this stairway. You see no one climbing the temple toward heaven. Instead of humanity being required to climb their way to heaven, you see instead heaven coming toward earth, toward humanity. God chooses instead to come to us. And we, as followers of Jesus, go, yeah, of course. But for them, this is, this is news. It's outside of the way they normally think about God. It doesn't fit into how they understand things. It disrupts their whole narrative for what they think God is supposed to be like. It disrupts the narrative, the, the story that we are so often constructing about God that is completely inaccurate. And it's a, a narrative that, that not only Jacob believes and continues to, to sow into, but it's one we continue to sow into. And the story is meant to kind of disrupt all of that for us. Like so much of our lives, if you think about it, the thing we wrestle with, again, is just like Jacob. We feel that God is distant and detached from our existence. We feel like so much of our lives, we are walking through doubt. We are asking questions. We are praying. We are worshiping. We have all of these questions, and we're waiting for God to respond. We spend so much of our lives imagining that God is not responding, and we're waiting on his response. We're waiting on God to finally draw near to us, and this story is showing us that that's just our perception. Jacob is realizing the shoe is on the other foot. It's that God has always been moving toward humanity. Heaven has always been moving toward earth. There's always been this overlap. God has always been coming toward humanity, and it is we who could not respond because we were unaware of it. We were too blind to see. We could not discern it or make sense of it. And from that, we begin to make all of these conclusions, right? Well, if God is not responding, right, I believe that, that, that God will eventually respond if I can meet the requirements. Apparently, I'm not meeting the requirements. This is why God is not responding. And so we spend our lives trying to meet the requirements, right? Because all religion seems to have some requirement that we're supposed to meet. If I meet the requirements, then heaven will respond because I will be worthy of heaven at that point. God will have to respond to me if I can show that I am worthy. This is the way religion normally works. It's the way faith normally functions. If I can do something profound enough, right? This is the way we tend to think about it because we've kind of moved on from all of that. We, again, as followers of Jesus, recognize that works righteousness is not what the Bible teaches, and so we don't really do that as much. We say instead, if I can be successful enough, 
if I can do something profound enough, something significant enough with my life, if I can do better, if I can be better than I used to be, then maybe that doesn't necessarily make me saved, but it will make me feel better about it, right? I'll feel more worthy. I'll feel better about myself if I can do that, right? And so there are all these people who are constantly trying to, at this present moment culturally, we're all like in this journey to find ourselves. We're hoping that by finding self, right, through, you know, self-actualization, realization, self-discovery, whatever it is, if I understand myself clearly enough, then I'll be able to get to the root of these desires I have. And maybe eventually I'll be able to short circuit sin itself. I'll be able to undo what is so terrible about me. And I'll be able to find the fulfillment that I've been longing for that I've never fully understood, right? Like this is the way we work. If I can do that, then again, I would be worthy enough. Heaven would have to respond to me. If I can find this sort of holistic health through therapeutic practice, physical, physiological kind of discipline, a healthy life, whatever it is, if I could get to that place, then I could, I could essentially heal myself, really. Like, like we're always in this mode, hoping that eventually then we'll feel like we have access to heaven. We have access to God. God will have to respond. Something will have to happen, right? But no, Jacob sees none of this. Not a humanity that's climbing to God, but a God who has decided to humble himself. A heaven that is somehow mysteriously mingled with earth in places that we just don't expect it. Not like what we imagined it would be. God has always been coming to us and it's we who've yet to respond. And all of this is only further highlighted. How unique, how strange this would have been to Jacob is only highlighted by the fact <laughs> that God isn't just saying this to anyone. God is saying this to Jacob, right? It isn't just anybody who's being addressed by God. It's Jacob. And Jacob is most certainly not a priest. He's not a holy man. He's not a righteous man. He's not even decent. Like, Jacob is a problem. Like, if you look at the story of Abraham, for example, right? God makes a covenant with Abraham. And you look at Abraham's story and you go, like, there's not anything particularly impressive about Abraham. He's prone to failure like the rest of us. He's just a, a very ordinary figure, right? Yes, his faith is something we look back to and we remember. Yes, that was good. But that was like, that took time, okay? Abraham's just very thoroughly ordinary. But Jacob's not just like ordinary. He's not just like your average Joe, kind of like plain guy. Like Jacob is a thief. Jacob is a manipulator. There's nothing flattering about Jacob's character. There's nothing about it that seems to reflect well, the character of God. The man takes from his own family, right? This is what he does. This is who he is. And we can kind of explain some of that. Like if you, you look at the story, his father Isaac has neglected him for years. He spent years trying to figure out why his father doesn't love him in the way that he loves his brother Esau. He spent years desperate, spent years longing for, for something, right? He's wounded and broken, and because of his desperation, he makes very desperate choices in life. He's just grasping for straws, right? Constantly clawing to try to get something for himself, right? So you can kind of understand where Jacob is coming from. 
simultaneously, you can, you can feel a little something for Jacob, but you also have to, like, you have to hate Jacob a little bit. Like, you have permission. The author is giving you permission. Jacob, in this story, is the villain. Esau may be the violent one. Esau's so broken. But he has a right to be violent here. Jacob is a mess. He's a problem. Jacob is the antagonistic one. He is a parasite, right? He's like the, uh, the actress or the actor that you know who's been typecast as a villain, right? You know him. Uh, I always think of... Um, like Christoph Waltz, if you know who he is, or uh, Willem Dafoe. Like, you, you see these guys in a movie, you're like, oh, this is bad. This is bad news. Like, don't trust them, right? It's a completely different movie, a completely different script. You're like, don't trust them because they're so good at it. They're just good. They've reached the pinnacle of their career in villainy. This is who they're supposed to be. That's Jacob. He's been typecast. That's who he is. That's the kind of stuff he does. He only wrecks his family further than it already was. And God comes to him in this dream. Not to some faithful pilgrim who has dedicated their life to the pursuit of holiness, to worshiping this deity. No. To Jacob. He comes to the most broken and flawed person we can imagine in the story. And he says, I am with you. And I will watch over you wherever you go. This is not what we're expecting. God generally comes to those, you know, who are deserving of it. God helps those who help themselves, right? That's in the Bible somewhere. No, that's Ben Franklin, I think. Um, but God does it anyway. God takes all of these promises that he's made to Abraham and he attaches them to Jacob. Like, why would we do that? It's not because Jacob is some worthy successor. He's done what he's supposed to do, his faithful life, right? It's, it's simply just a reflection of the, the character of God. God has chosen to do this. God made a promise to his people a long time ago and Jacob's brokenness does not negate the promise. It doesn't undo the promise that God has made, right? There's this cool story. Later, Jacob will come back to Bethel, right? It's much later in life. And when he comes back, God gives him a new name, right? He comes back to what is now an incredibly sacred place for him. And God names him there Israel. And if you know anything about it, that's actually a reference to another story in his life, a lot of crazy things happen to Jacob at nighttime. Uh, Jacob goes to sleep and really cool things happen, apparently. One time, he has this incredible dream of a stairway from heaven. Uh, another time, he wrestles with God all night. It's an angel, it's God, we don't know for sure. But he stays up all night struggling, wrestling with God. And when he comes back to Bethel, God gives him this name, Israel, which means he struggles with God. That's what the word means. It, he struggles, he wrestles with God. And it's not just meant to remind us of that thing that happened that one night to Jacob. It's meant to show us the paradigm of our relationship with God. It was always going to be rocky. It was always going to be a struggle. It was always going to be this wrestling that existed. It was always going to look the same way. 
Israel, God's people, the church, you and I, were always going to fail, and God was always going to renew his promise, and God was always going to accomplish his purpose regardless of all of that. This is the way it was always going to look. In Jacob's story, it it makes it so clear. It reveals it to us. This is not just the God who's willing to reveal himself to those who have done enough, come far enough. It's the God that, that we know from Isaiah. Centuries later, right? Isaiah 11. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Regardless. Jacob or not, he's with us. He walks, even in the most ordinary and broken sort of spaces of our lives. Now, take all of Genesis 28, put that in your pocket, like hold on to that, and think of the words of Jesus. There's this story in in John 1. Jesus has just met Nathaniel, okay? His Disciple Philip has gone to a friend, Nathaniel, and said, listen, you got to meet Jesus. You need to see this man. You need to to get to know him. And Nathaniel comes, and Jesus' words to Nathaniel are, as he sees him walking up, he says, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, right? It's a nice greeting, right? Nathaniel is like, yeah, thank you. It's it's very kind of you. But who are you? Like, "I, I I don't know you. How do you know me? And Jesus begins to refer back to to Jacob. He goes right back to Genesis 28. He says, I saw you when you were still sitting under the fig tree before Philip came to you. Right? Jesus, astonishingly, he, he refers back to this moment where Philip is alone, where nobody's with him. Nobody else seemingly knows about whatever happened under the fig tree. Just, just Nathaniel. And yet Jesus is telling him about it. And in this moment, he just, he, he can't contain himself. Rabbi, he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, he says. You're Messiah, is what he's saying. It's very clear to him. No one else could see me sitting under that fig tree. No one else would know about what happened to me, about this thing that I went through, whatever it is. And Jesus continues. He presses further with Nathaniel. He says, you believed simply because I said I saw you under the fig tree. And I'm telling you, you're going to see greater things than that. And then Genesis 28 kicks in. He says, you will see all of heaven opened. And you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He takes this very familiar story that every Israelite knows and remembers so well. And he says, that's me. Jesus is taking this this profound moment, this epiphany from Jacob's life, where Jacob began to see God differently, through a different lens, where he began to understand things, where Jacob began to see heaven opened up to humanity, when Jacob began to see that God himself comes to us, and now Jesus is clarifying, that is me, like I am the stairway that Jacob saw. I am Bethel, the house of God. I am the means by which God has come to humanity, right? Jesus is saying, I am the miracle. I am the anomaly of human history. 
I'm the thing that doesn't look very impressive, that looks very common and ordinary, but in reality, I am sacred space. Fully God and fully man, fully heaven and fully earth, right? I am the overlap of heaven and this world. I am the seemingly ordinary place that God has marked as sacred space. That's me. I am Bethel. Jesus is the embodiment, the living, breathing, flesh and blood reality of this promise God made so long ago. That's what he's saying. Nathaniel was just impressed with, with his ability to, to remember something nobody else knows about. And Jesus says, oh, it gets much better. History is full of this long list of charismatic figures, men and women who make us want to be better and do better and do more, right? Who show us how we can achieve holiness and enlightenment and peace and a better life and whatever it might be, salvation itself. There are all these people that we follow. But Jesus is the outlier. Jesus fits into none of our schemes of the way God is supposed to work. We think of God, again, rightfully so, as holy, as high, and lifted up. God is glorious. Jesus shows us God is also humble. Jacob's story shows us a God who is humble, who stoops over and over again and has been from the dawn of history, stooping lower and lower that he might know us, that he might be with us. Jacob's story Jesus himself, it all reveals God revels in the ordinary. God revels in the common. God revels even in our brokenness. He is drawn to it, to our weakness and our frailty. It's not just something he finds out about later in the relationship that he didn't know about, some skeleton in our closet that he later finds out about. No, he's drawn to it specifically. This is what we're seeing. God delights to be present, not just in those sacred, significant, powerful moments or those moments that we feel most proud of. He's present in the midst of it all. He's an anomaly. And even as Jesus is an anomaly, I, I think in the season of Epiphany, there's this cool opportunity that we are invited by the spirit that lives in us, that he gives us, we're invited to become ourselves these categorical anomalies, right? Cultural anomalies, these outliers that don't fit into anybody's category of what God is supposed to look like, of what faith is supposed to look like. We are meant to be disruptors of the narrative that people have of what God is supposed to be like. Revealing something else entirely. There's this opportunity to live our lives in such a way as to break that, that old mold, to disrupt that story that people are telling. The church is called to be a miraculous, unique kind of anomaly. Inexplicable in its ability to embody the reality of heaven in these earthly tents of ours. That's what it's supposed to be. And in this season, that's what we're reflecting on. That's what we're coming back to. 
Is that actually true? Are we anomalies? Or do we fit neatly into the narrative, the categories that people have for the way God is supposed to be? Is the church an anomaly or is it just like every other nonprofit you could support and get behind? Is there anything unique about the church or are we just playing the same game that everyone is, revealing the same God that they've always imagined? Is the church revealing a God like they always imagined or, or is the church revealing the God of Abraham and Isaac and even Jacob? Even the broken, even the most broken, even the most manipulative, even the, the typecast villain. And as the band comes and we come to the table, there's this clear moment like communion is one of these things. We do it week after week. It's ordinary. It's just by the side of the road kind of stuff. And yet... There is this mingling of heaven and earth. It is the body and blood of Jesus, and it is just bread and a cup. The juice came from public, so did the bread, right? And yet, somehow, there is this mingling, God's presence powerfully in it. And as we come to the table, there's this invitation for us to become that in these very ordinary places we find ourselves in this week, in these relationships of ours that don't maybe feel like anything's happening in them, these tasks that we're given over and over again that feel meaningless, to come and find a way in the midst of those moments to mingle heaven and earth in such a way that others can see it, to reveal the true character and nature of God. To make known the gospel and the reality of the kingdom in a way that people just haven't seen it or understood it before. How do we do that in these very ordinary places? How do we begin to discern God's presence in the places where everybody else would say, obviously nothing is happening. Obviously nothing is going on. Nothing profound here. How do we begin to do that? How are we becoming this miraculous, inexplicable anomaly in these common sort of places? This is the invitation as followers of Jesus to reveal something different, a God who breaks all of our categories, who sits just beyond the boundaries, who sits just beyond the edge of what we know, who can't be contained or understood in the ways everybody else imagines them to be. Now let's pray. Father, help us as we come. as we find ourselves maybe in a, in a space where we're, we're longing for our own epiphany, where we find ourselves maybe longing for heaven to open, for you to speak with clarity. God, we pray that you would enable us to see this movement that exists between heaven and earth. You're coming to us, not just once, not twice, but over and over again. Yeah, enable us by your spirit to discern those moments, to recognize in the, the common, the, the sanctifying work that you are doing. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So come in these moments, tear off a piece of bread, grab a cup, and you can move back toward your seats. Uh, and then when they finish this song, we'll all come back together.